Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. everyone. Before we get into the topic of today's new episode, I wanted to let you know about my special Black Friday promotion that I have running now through midnight Pacific time on Friday, November 27th. For this limited time, I'm offering access to my parenting membership for only $25 a month and to my supporting your child's learning membership for only $35 a month. Now, those of you who know me and the show might be kind of surprised to hear me running a Black Friday promotion. After all, I get complaints about my left-leaning anti-capitalist stance all the time. And I thought it would be doubly amusing to talk about this before an episode on technoference, which is when technology like our smartphones interferes with our relationships, because I imagine a number of you are planning technology-related purchases for the holidays. But I decided to do this for two reasons. Firstly, I know these memberships can help you. I've seen so many parents transform their approach to parenting and get confident in supporting their child's love of learning through the memberships. And secondly, we're in a year when people are looking for holiday gifts that just don't involve bringing more stuff into our homes and that also can't involve going out to museums and other places that may well be closed. And the parenting membership can really help you go from just hanging on to actually thriving in parenting. And the learning membership will help you make the best use of your time that you're already spending with your children to support their intrinsic love of learning. And those things are completely aligned with my values. If you missed the Black Friday promotion, there will still be time to enroll at the regular rate starting on December 1st, and we'll dive into the content as a group on January 1st. Just go to yourparentingmojo.com to learn more and enroll today. Now, whether you take advantage of the Black Friday promotion or you enroll in December, I believe in helping as many families as possible and have tried to make even the regular rates accessible to everyone. I'm confident that anyone who joins and learns the material that I'll make easily accessible for you will support learning and development in their children, find parenting easier, and lay the groundwork for transformational change at home. I want to read you a bit of a message that member Catherine wrote to me about her experience in the parenting membership. So Catherine says, the membership has really allowed me to hone in on the doing, the concrete actions I want to take, and move from the endless swirl of ideas to actually implementing the ones that are based on my values. It's allowed me to stop waiting for perfection when I've figured out how to do it all and focus instead on progress. It just really hits the nail on the head of what I need to know. The most recent module we covered on our sense of ourselves as parents has allowed me to perceive so much differently in my day-to-day -day life and take in what I'm learning elsewhere in a different way. I've gained so much clarity even in the last week and notice a palpable difference in my sense of calm and in my acceptance of my children, my husband, and others with whom I inter interact in relation to my children. 
So in my parenting membership, you'll lean on a research-based approach to support your child's development while making parenting easier. This membership is for children aged around 18 months through the end of elementary school, regardless of where you are in your parenting journey, from the parent who's just trying to survive to the parent who's looking to the future. Your first year in the parenting membership is now only $25 a month through Black Friday, November 27th. In my Supporting Your Child's Learning membership, you'll learn how to best support your child's intrinsic love of learning. Most of us want this for our children, but we don't know how, and even more, how we interact with our children often actually works against this goal. This membership is for parents with children old enough to ask questions through the end of elementary school and who want to set the stage for a lifetime love of learning. Janelle joined the membership because she wanted to support her children's love of learning, but the only way she knew how to do that was to do what school does, to teach them stuff they needed to know. Through the membership, Janelle has learned that she doesn't have to teach for her child to learn. In fact, some of the most powerful learning happens when we just model for our child. Janelle found that one simple mindset shift has really made a huge difference in her ability to support her child's learning. She says, most notably, I find I'm answering my children's questions in a more open way. Sometimes this is with another question. Other times it might just be a more vague, open-ended answer. It's a change that sounds so basic and common sense when I think about it now, but I needed that extra bump from the membership to actually make me realize it and apply it. Special Black Friday pricing for my Supporting Your Child's Learning membership is now only $35 a month through Midnight Pacific on Black Friday, which is November 27th, and we get started on January 1st. Both of the memberships include all of the information that you need and none of the fluff that you don't to achieve the easy, joy-filled family life that you work so hard for, but which may seem so out of reach right now. And both memberships include support and community so you can make that next tiny step that you need to take to help you reach your goals. Go to yourparentingmojo.com today to take advantage of these special Black Friday offers. The parenting membership for only $25 a month and the supporting your child's learning membership for only $35 a month. Support your child's learning and development while making parenting easier. Perhaps the best gift you could give to your family this holiday season. Thanks again for listening. I hope the rest of your year is filled with joy and activities that are truly meaningful in your life. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. I've had our topic today on my mind for a while and over the last few months I think it's become more relevant than it ever has been before and the topic we're going to talk about today is technoference and that's the idea that technology and specifically mobile phones interferes with relationships that we have with other people. It can interfere with relationships of all kinds, and you might first rest on your partner <laughs> and how you perceive your partner's phone use interfering with your relationship, and we'll certainly touch on that, but our primary focus for today will be on how our phones interfere with our relationships with our children. We'll learn how concerned we should really be about this and what we should try and do to balance our own needs for connectedness with others and our children's need for connectedness with us. And so here to discuss this today with us is Dr. Jenny Rodeski. Dr. Rodeski is a developmental behavioral pediatrician and assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Michigan Medical School. Dr. Rodeski obtained her MD from Harvard Medical School, conducted her pediatrics residency at the University of Washington, and then a fellowship in developmental behavioral pediatrics at Boston University. She's board certified in pediatrics and developmental behavioral pediatrics. 
Her research interests include the use of mobile technology by parents and young children and how this relates to child self-regulation and parent-child interaction. She was the lead author of the 2016 American Academy of Pediatrics policy statement on digital media use in early childhood. Welcome, Dr. Rieski. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's start kind of where we often do when we're coming to a topic like this, which is with some some definitions and terminology. And I actually learned a new word while I was researching this episode, which is fubbing. <laughs> so I'm wondering, can you help us understand what is technoference? What is fubbing? Is it the same thing or is it different? It's pretty similar. I mean, the, the term fubbing uh, was in the research literature first okay. as I was starting to try to research how parents' phone use influences family dynamics. It was like 2010, 2011, and I was in my fellowship, and I was scouring the literature for any prior research on parents and kids and technology. And there wasn't much. There was really just this fubbing phenomenon, Mm -hmm. which was how a mobile phone inserts itself into an interpersonal space. And the, you know, the person who is doing the fubbing kind of gets a little bit transported to you know, another virtual space where they're interacting with someone else or with other content. And then the fubby gets, you know, often the research was showing they're frustrated. And this term started even when mobile phones were just little dumb phones, you know, with texting capabilities. And the mobile communications research was really just interested in now we could take these devices everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, they were focused on using technology on mass transit or at mealtimes or during other times that normally had a bit of a boundary around it when it came to technology use. So technoference was a term developed by my co-author and collaborator, Brandon McDaniel. He's a psychologist who's at Parkview Research Center in Indiana. So he gets the credit for that term, (laughs) but he coined that term in trying to capture a research measure that's not just about how much is the parent using technology or how much is the child using technology, but what's happening with the relationship? And so it became a questionnaire asking parents about on a typical day, you know, how many devices are you using uh, when you're interacting with your child? Yeah. And so what I found was most helpful was kind of thinking about technoference in terms of the relationship. And then I just want to define fubbing. It's this portmanteau of phone and snubbing yes. <laughs> stuck together. But I, I found the idea of the fubber and the fubby to be useful to distinguish who's on which end of that relationship as well. Yeah. So. And I think there's been some interesting ethnographic research where, where people have interviewed families to talk about how it feels when your spouse or partner mm-hmm. is doing the fubbing, especially when it's just a high stress time in your household or you know someone has to change a diaper and all of a sudden your partner is absorbed in their phone. And so that you know negative connotation that comes with the term snubbing mm-hmm. has even more layers when it comes to parents who are taking care of a young child, which is just such, you know, has many different sources of stress in it to begin with, many different issues around co-parenting and role overload. And I'm interested in early childhood mostly because it's such a time of building resilience mm-hmm. when kids are facing adversity or stressful times like a pandemic. Secure relationships are a huge buffer to that stress or are a way that kids make meaning of stressful times, build emotion regulation. You know, So that's why I kind of put my interest in technology that started when I was in Seattle 
you know, I was in Seattle in like 2007, 2006, 2011, <laughs> which is like just the time that the iPhone and all these yeah. devices were coming out. And I was like, this is fascinating. You know, dynamics were changing so much in our hospital and our um, offices. So I took that with my interest in early childhood relationships. And that's where my first study in the fast food restaurants came from. Cause I was like, I just want to observe what's happening here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to come in with preconceived hypotheses or notions about this is bad. This is good. I want to observe, take field notes. Like I'm an anthropologist and just see the patterns of what's happening. And that study wound up getting so much press attention because there was already this societal kind of uh, concern, like every time there's new technologies introduced, society gets a bit anxious. They feel uncomfortable. They feel disrupted. This has happened extremely rapidly. You know, the way that we've adopted these new technologies is so much faster than the way radio or telephones were adopted. So I was a fellow at the time and getting interviewed, you know, by like the Today Show or Al Jazeera America. And I was like, wow, people are really concerned about this. I need to be aware of the fact that this is a hot topic mm-hmm. that's going to polarize, that's going to kind of have some implicit judgment in it too. Yeah. And that's where my research you know, on this topic started. Okay. So I wonder if we can go into that a little bit then, because I think a lot of the research that had been conducted to that point on fubbing, as it was known until then, uh, was sort of done by asking people, how much do you use your phone? And then the, the phobie, how much does it annoy you when somebody uses your phone, right. when, when they use their phone in front of you? And your methodology, it was the first time I'd seen it in the literature in this, you know, to be used in this way. And it's been replicated a whole bunch of times in different environments since then. So can you tell us what did you do? And then what did you see when you're sitting in these restaurants? Yeah. And it took me a while to land on this study design, actually. Mm-hmm. So we thought about creating a survey. And that's what a lot of the fubbing research had been on. But I was really worried that a survey would have too much what we call social desirability bias in research. And I also knew that the way that we interact with phones is more intermittent or immersive. Mm. I knew there was that cultural overlay of judgment of parents about it. So I, I didn't want to you know, create a survey that could possibly be biased. I wanted objective data. So objective meaning you can kind of observe it and count it and see what's happening without the parent being self-conscious that they're being judged. So we decided on public observations. This has been done to look at how parents discipline their kids in public. It's been done to look at how, you know, people interact with public spaces. And it's considered ethical because we didn't collect any identifiable data. We didn't write down any child names but the participants didn't know we were watching. It's, you know, it's called non-participant observation because you go and you blend in with the surroundings. So myself and two research assistants just went to all these fast food restaurants in Boston in the spring and summer of 2013. I was like pregnant as can be with my second son. And um, we were taking field notes. So we would bring a laptop and some books and act like we were just, you know, drinking an iced coffee and taking field notes. We tried to go to sampled around different neighborhoods in Boston that had higher income, lower income, you know, Panera to Chipotle to McDonald's. And we just took these long winded, continuous notes of like, mom picks up phone, it's held about 10 inches from her face, you know, child is eating French fry. So boring. But when we read these field notes over and over, we were just seeing patterns and themes of 
behavior that emerged. The biggest theme was absorption, we called it, which is a term that's been used before, but it was really this idea that the parents gaze and attention, and it looked like a lot of their cognitive energy was on the phone, not on the child. We were looking a lot, not just for the negative. We were looking for times when parents and kids were sharing media and laughing over it. We saw that like four times out of 55 families. We saw, you know, about a third of families who used phones were, had this absorption where there was very little conversation. Kids would sometimes act up to get their attention. You know, we saw one child who tried to pull his mom's face up from her iPad and she yelled at him and pushed him away. Or another mom that kind of, you know, nudged her or kicked her kids under the table when they were, you know, acting up and trying to get her attention. And none of this, we, we really didn't want to describe it in a way that made the parents sound like they're being bad parents. It was really like, this is a new phenomenon. Parents have never had their attentions, you know, spread in so many different directions. And I saw it as like, a hypothesis generating study. Like what's going on here? How do we measure this? What is going on on the phone that drags our attention in so much? You know, are there other underlying relationship variables or parent mental health variables that could be affecting the phone use, right? So I did not imply that this was causative, you know, that phone use was causing this sort of parenting reaction. And then, so I decided to do some follow-up studies to really get at some of the mechanisms of what's going on here. Okay. And I just want to sort of conclude with the point that this has been replicated a whole bunch of times since then, often in playgrounds. So yeah. <laughs> you see somebody <laughs> on a typing on a computer on a playground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we actually chose not to do playgrounds because I kind of felt like, well, you know, let kids have some risky play and let them run off and let parents talk to each other or zone out a little bit. Mm -hmm. But playgrounds are just another easy public observation space. So it is a valid way to collect data. We chose mealtimes because we thought there should usually be some face-to-face interaction, not 100% of the meal, but, you know, for some of the meal. But fast food restaurant meals, we also, you know, made sure to say, don't mean that this is what's happening at home. Yeah. During mealtimes either. Right. It was just one brief way to look at this. Yeah. Yeah. And in some of the other studies that I found that that happened to be about playgrounds, it varied from kind of three quarters of the people who were observed were using their phones for a good chunk of the time to in one study only it said two thirds of observed parents spent spent less than five percent of their time using their phone at the park. So there's a really widespread 41 percent of those people didn't use a phone at all. Uh, <laughs> I can't say that I've ever observed that. <laughs> I know. Exactly. It, that result surprised me, but there's definitely uh, a very broad spread of different observed behavior in different places. Right. And as a scientist, I'm thinking, okay, we care about duration, right? So so there, that's one variable. There's also the not only the total amount of say seconds or minutes, but it's also the number of initiations, notifications. You know, is it initiated by the mom or the or the dad? Is it initiated by the notification on the phone? Yeah. And then the content of what's going on on the phone really made me curious too. Is it a social media ping? Is it a game? Is it email? Because mm-hmm. all of those things have different effects on our emotions and our cognitions. Mm -hmm. And then, so I did some interview research with parents next because I really wanted to hear what their experiences were like and, you know, how they, how they described multitasking between kids and kind of their to-do list on their phones. 
how intrusive it felt sometimes. Like one mom said, it's like the whole world is in your lap and I didn't need it to be. It just is now and I can't resist checking. Other moms saying, you know, these games have a hook. They just keep pulling me in. I don't like, I heard a lot of ambivalence from parents about, I feel drawn to this, but I don't always feel like I love it, but I do love it sometimes. I remember one mom saying, when I'm cooking and I've been at home all day, I love these little human contacts that I get with other adults and I get news from the adult world. But then sometimes it's exhausting too, because the news is not good or there's like too many texts or notifications to respond to. So she described it as like, there's these little nuggets of excitement and then a ton of exhaustion (laughs) in her relationship with her phone. And, you know, I really started to focus on tech design at that point. Like how are our phones drawing us in unnecessarily? Mm -hmm. Because it really felt like in some cases it was undermining parents' own balance and relationship with their phone. And that sometimes they felt like this isn't actually what I needed at this time, but you know, I I went to check one thing and I was on for half an hour and now I'm grumpy, you know? So (laughs) there's so many different levels of measurement that we need to get right in the science Mm -hmm. to give better guidance to parents. Cause we can't just say, turn your phones off. Right. (laughs) This is how we connect with the world and our social lives but we can recognize that some aspects of the use are not supporting us as parents. They're not as helpful as they could be. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely saw that theme in the literature as well. The idea that, especially if we're in a nuclear family and the other parent is at work somewhere, maybe even out of the house all day, or happens to be shut up in another room for the bulk of the day working and you're with the kids pretty much by yourself for most of the day, then it can get lonely. It can get boring and the the technology can provide an escape from that. On the flip side of that, there was also, I mean, research on what happens when we interact with Facebook and we seem to have, this misattribution error where we think that if we go to Facebook and we're we're going and looking for an experience that's going to leave us feeling better when we come out and what actually tends to happen is we come out of that experience feeling worse than we went in. (laughs) Isn't that, you know, I see that as a design problem because Facebook (laughs) Facebook could be this oasis for parents, right? Uh It could be this place where you find your people, your support, your ideas, you like get ideas for a new dentist or, you know, new fall activities to go do with your kids, right? That's what I hear from parents are the helpful bits of Facebook, but then they're navigating all the garbage at the same time. (laughs) And the garbage is there because of the business model that Facebook has in terms of letting there be, you know, lots of ads that are trying to, to kind of target you and your specific psychological approach to the world. You know, parents are encountering a lot of like polarized parenting information that's really like, this is the best way to do this. And that, you know, inherent judgment that they're feeling from clickbait type of parenting information or or the way that the stuff that gets shared the most is usually the most outrageous or the most arousing, Mm -hmm. I think is where it's not suiting our needs. Mm -hmm. So It may be idealistic and not going to happen anytime soon, but I've really supported the idea of like, could there be a PBS for social media, right? Like a public broadcasting system Mm -hmm. where we're not, you know, our data and our, it's not all built on us getting the perfect ads, Mm -hmm. right? You can get some ads. Absolutely. Ads can support like, you know, good websites and media, but it doesn't have to be this whole kind of underground, like we don't even know as much about it there's this really 
great but thick book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, where if you want to dig into this, <laughs> this sort of topic about this whole, what she calls like the shadow text of like underlying all of these web platforms and social media sites is data collection, profiling, figuring out who we are as parents, what our vulnerabilities are, and then, you know, auctioning off ads to us. And um, like, if hearing me say that, I'm like, that doesn't sound parent-centered at all. Who needs that? And when you have design that's really meant to engage us more and make us click more things and make us share more of our information so that the advertisers know us better, it all kind of sounds ridiculous when you have a fussy baby at home mm-hmm. or you're arguing it with your spouse and you just need a break and want to connect with your friends. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's my little rant <laughs> about, pitch. you know, family-centered design because yeah. you don't have to feel so hard. Mm. But this is where tech design, you know, currently is. There's a lot of pushback against it for sure. But I'd love for parents to have, feel the right to have some pushback against it as well. I, I do wonder if we made it so amazing, people would then want to use it more. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> that's true. How, how does that impact? And, and I think this is the bulk of where we, where the research is and where a parent's interest lies is where, what happens to our child, to the fubby, as it were, and mm. by extension, you know, what's happening in our relationship with the child when we're doing this, when this is going on. And the ways that I see the research on this is that it went from kind of cruder measurements of what's happening with the child. Like my fast food study was, you know, some children just don't talk to their parents, don't try to get their attention. Other children tend to act up, appear to try to do silly things or, you know, ways to grab their parents' attention or get them to put the phone down. And certainly my kids have done that to (laughs) me as well. But, you know, those are like really broad strokes of descriptions of children We then did a study where we had videotapes of parents and kids eating together during this structured task. It was done as part of another study that was looking at obesity and eating styles. And they did this 15-minute task where they introduced some new foods, some familiar foods, and they were coding how much the parents and children interacted about eating. It was kind of a boring task. So that's a a natural stimulus for bringing out your phone, which a quarter of the moms did. And that it was this naturalistic kind of capture of real phone use. We didn't manipulate it. It just happened. So we coded, you know, the moms who were using their phone more, talked to their kids less, both in encouraging ways or nonverbal ways too. The moms didn't differ. The phone using moms from non-phone using moms didn't differ in terms of their depression levels, their parenting style, their income or their race. Or So I thought that was a good sign that like, this isn't just a marker. Mm-hmm of a parent who is different somehow or stressed somehow. There's some perturbation happening here, but it's not just phone leads to negative child behavior, right? Because in child development theory, it's always transactional, bidirectional. So we did a a follow-up study from that. And in this study, moms had gone through this interview called the working model of the child interview. I love this interview because you're basically just saying to moms like, tell me about your kid. Give me three words or five words that describe them. Give me an example of what made you choose that word. And the interview is coded for how sensitive or reflective the parents are about their child or how emotionally distant they might be or or critical or see their child as difficult. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things trended with phone use. So moms who use their phones more 
had more of these perceptions of their child as like this abstract, difficult, like not really getting in their child's mind Mm -hmm. of what's driving your behavior. You know, they weren't as reflective about how their behavior impacts their child or what drives their child's behavior. So that was a sign to me, like this either could be a lot of phone use during parent-child times could be displacing these times where you learn to read your kid, you know, and, and you don't have to be perfect at this, right? Research shows we can just be good enough yeah. and, you know, and, and mess up sometimes and, and you're fine, but it helps you as a parent to know what, how are you ticking? Like what is driving that crazy behavior? Because if you can address the underlying issue and help your child express that emotion in a different way or meet that impulse in a slightly, you know, with a replacement behavior, you're teaching Mm -hmm. while you're disciplining. You're not just reacting and punishing or reacting and thinking, you're crazy. Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) Yeah, you're you're speaking language we understand here. Behavior being expression of a need. (laughs) Right, and so, right, behavior is seeing behavior as communication rather than as a parent getting flooded by your child's affect. It's also possible though that, let's say you're a parent who's had some trauma or you're, you have other reasons why it's hard for you to be reflective about your child's emotional state. Maybe those parents use technology more around families because number one, it helps give you this buffer from your child's affect and helps you feel like (laughs) I need a little break from you or they don't realize the impact it's having on their, their child in that moment. Right. So again, like we're diving beyond the you know, parent uses phone, child acts bad into what's the mechanism here. And I like this mechanism because it's not about blaming parents for like, you know, don't use your phone. It makes your kid act bad. It's maybe using the phone a ton is an escape mechanism for you and being aware of how much that's happening. You're just diving into your phone when life at home is too stressful because your phone is this frictionless, personalized space. or Maybe the flip of that is also that the more you are able to think about what's driving your child's behavior, how they are responding to you, how they're just how they're wired, you know, what's their personality and their temperament like, and what are the things they need to get their energy out? That stuff makes parenting easier. Yeah. Once you know those things about your child. So, and not in this precious way of like that you need to perfectly know your child. You just have to. Have, wonder and have a hunch, like what's going on with this? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, I think one of the messages I hope comes off as less judgmental to parents when it comes to this whole discussion of phone use, because it's something that parents can so easily just blame themselves about. Yeah. And rather it's something they could empower themselves about to be like, mm, you know, maybe I need to set aside some time where I'm just single tasking so that it actually feels easier to parent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we talked a good deal about the relationship and what's happening in the relationship yeah. between the two people. And I'm also curious about it from the child's perspective. And, and I know that's really hard to get to when we're talking about young children. And I've seen some research on adults and when researchers ask adults, how do you feel? And they talk about communication being of lower quality and decreased trust. And it feels like the other person is empathizing. And that even, actually, this, this was fascinating, uh, a study in that had people, two people in a restaurant who hadn't met before, 
and observed how much they use their phones during a conversation that the researchers asked them to have. And just having a phone on the table decreased the amount of trust that the other person felt in that person, even if they didn't look at their phone or do anything with their phone. And I thought, oh my goodness, it would have been so easy to go experimental with that. You can have the researcher be a person who either has the phone on the table or not and actually manipulate it and go one step further, but they didn't, unfortunately. And so what do we know, if anything, about how young children are perceiving us when we are using our phones around them? Yeah. The first bit of child interview data that I saw that wasn't a published study, but it was in Catherine Steiner Adair as a psychologist in Boston and wrote a book called The Big Disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I think it came out in like 2013 or something, but it she interviewed children who were like school age to teenagers about media use in their family. Mm-hmm. And they said things like, I just hate it when she's on her phone because it seems like she's more interested in the phone than me. Or, you know, when they use it while we're playing together, it feels like they're going away from me. I These aren't exact quotes, but it was that general idea. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask, I tell parents to ask their own kids mm-hmm. because every child is different and is going to, <laughs> right? Because sometimes I've asked my kids and like my older child is like, yeah, I don't like it when your laptop's out because you just seem serious <laughs> and you're working hard, or you're focusing on stuff. And my little one was, I remember asking him once and he was like, oh, I like it when you use your phone because I know that I can go, you know, <laughs> find an iPad or do something. You're you're distracted, right? Uh-huh. So he's got a little more <laughs> social thinking <laughs> that he's doing to manipulate the moment, but it's worth asking, right? It's worth talking about these fubbing dynamics because we're living in them, we're immersed in them, and kids are going to have to be aware of how they're doing that to other people or how it feels. You know, I love this PSA that Common Sense Media put out a few years ago with Will Ferrell ignoring his kids at the dinner table. I didn't see that. I mean, he's just being ridiculous and doing like a cat filter while his kids are trying to talk to him. And, you know, so... When you can call out the things we're all doing, but we're not talking about, I, th- I just think it helps kind of clear the air and lets us talk about them more realistically and lets us say to each other, like, hold on, I really need to talk to you about this. Let's put your phone down. So it doesn't sound, you know, judgy. It's just like, I know your attention is split right. if you're looking at your phone while we're talking. Yeah. Another study that's worth mentioning about how do children receive the interruption Mm -hmm. was done by some psychologists and language researchers. I think it was Temple or University of Delaware. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, was involved in that. And uh, exactly. He's been on the shark before. (laughs) Yeah. So I love their lab and they just did a very creative, simple experiment of a parent and a young child came into the lab and did a, like a language teaching task, which is a usual standard task to see you know, how a parent could teach a child, usually a nonsense word, something new. And they randomized the families to get interrupted with a, I I can't remember if it was a text or a phone call. It was a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. But it was brief. And even though they, all the families completed the language teaching task, children in the interrupted condition didn't remember the word or didn't learn it as well as the children in the uninterrupted condition. And So that was really fascinating that this little break in our joint attention with each other or 
a loss of the kind of flow of a reciprocal interaction can impact the quality of our interactions. And young children depend on this the most because they're watching us for where are we looking? What are we paying attention to when we are, you know, have some good reciprocity where we're having a serve and return conversation. We're building off of their ideas. They're building off of ours. That's where kids are picking up the most knowledge and words. And so when that gets disrupted or made a little more shallow, that can perhaps impact language development. And that's been shown like with background TV. Yeah. Is that when the background TV is on and parents are using less rich words during play than children in one study had toddlers had lower language development. Mm. I think as a developmental behavioral pediatrician, I test kids for autism also, you know, on a weekly basis. So I'm looking for that reciprocity as a way that we're maintaining an interaction and building off of each other. It's a really important part of social development. And that's where it could also be disrupted, you know, so that you know, kids are learning some pretty deep things from us, even in everyday moments. Like, how do I feel? What does this mean? You know, it's not just words and ABCs and colors. It's, you know, the kind of meaning systems that help children understand themselves and what's happening in the world. And so, you know, that's where the disruptions, we really could use some more research looking, not just at behavior Mm -hmm. or language, but at kids, you know, emotion regulation or their sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. I think the key thing that I got out of that word learning task study was the idea that uh, we might think of, you know, we, we get a text message, we look away and we check it and we come back or we get a phone call we come back, we pick up the task where we left off, we might think of that as a pause, but our children seem to perceive it in a very different way. So it's sort of like a disruption to them. It's not just, you know, there there was a break where something irrelevant to me happened that I didn't need to pay attention to. And now I'm going to pick up right where I left off. There's some sort of disruption there that's meaning that they weren't learning that word as effectively as they did when the parent was not interrupted. And I think one of the interesting potential mechanisms there is what parents described to me in my interviews of there's kind of a shadow cast by what you just did on your phone. Mm -hmm. So if it's your ex-boyfriend who was violent with you in the past and now they, how did they get, you know, why are they accessing me right now? What do they want? If it is news of the world that's really stressful right now, it kind of contaminates that time or cast this shadow that may affect your emotional state or your ability to focus and kind of pick right back up where you left off. And that's where, you know, I think the ability to turn off notifications or have your phone in a different space in the room or in your bag or something else where you just have physical distance from it mm-hmm. can help it be less of something just on your mind. You know, like that study you mentioned that even just the presence of the phone yeah on the table is taking up part, you know, part of your attention mm-hmm. and does it really need to, you know, these devices have been crafted to have us depend on them and be inseparable from them just so we use them all the time. And isn't that a great product if you make someone really dependent on it and want it all the time and need it for everything, but we don't, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of the time we, we can be away from it for you know, for a certain amount of time, depending if you're on call or you have a sick 
parent or something like that. Of course, those are times where you do need to really be attached to yeah. to communication technologies. Okay. And then just as sort of wrapping up this, you know, what are the impacts on the child? I think two things that I'd like to, to get to is, uh, firstly, as children get older and are more able to start reporting, you know, what happens? And secondly, a study from Australia that we were discussing before we started the recorded conversation and that sort of seemed to cast a little more nuance on this than it always being bad. So, so maybe we can first talk, talk about teenagers because we're going to get there sooner than we might think. <laughs> and quite a number of studies have found links to links between fubbing behavior and disconnection in the relationships, which is linked to depression, externalizing problems and all kinds of things. And obviously it's not experimental evidence, so we can't say that one causes the other. But what kinds of trends here are you seeing as children are getting older related to their behavior, the relationships with their parents? You know, it depends, right? So I've definitely have seen that children who just have more sources of resilience, either strong mental health or strong pre-existing relationships, that they may be more resilient to some of the potential impacts of, of having more in-person disconnection from their families. So there is that bi-directionality, right? So if you have a family that stresses you out and you kind of want to withdraw from them into your peer group or into a virtual space that you where you can be yourself, it's actually, you know, there's plenty of positives of being able to find your people through virtual means, but it's when it is displacing the time you maybe need to heal or connect with people that you're not getting along well with mm-hmm. is where I think we need more research. So like I'm, I'm very interested in families with struggling with adversity or mental health issues or trauma where technology may be used as an avoidance tactic or an emotional distancing tactic or a, you know, regulating the child's behavior so that they don't stress the parent out as much. Mm -hmm. Those are displacing important moments of the parent understanding their child's emotional state and then the child learning about themselves and about how to self-regulate through those everyday interactions that with enough displacement are just not going to happen as much. So the two studies that I think support this are the one you mentioned from Australia, where they you know, had surveyed over 3,000 families. And it was really just when there was a lot of family displacement, where technoference was problematic in terms of having more negative outcomes associated with it. But when you just had a little bit of technoference without much displacement, that was actually associated with better parenting outcomes because the parents were getting a break. And this couldn't be more relevant than during the pandemic when we're just around each other all the time. And I've heard parents say like, I need my own space from the kids and we need time where we're doing our own things and not just breathing it down each other's necks. So I like that there's, you know, we need to maybe categorize this a little bit better as the extremes or when there's, you know, clearly an avoidance or an emotional distancing function to the phone use. I also think as kids get older, they're learning from us informally through our role modeling and through observing us. So the more they see us using phones as an emotion regulation tool, the more they may see that as a norm or a way that they just, well, you know, it's okay to just withdraw into my device when we've just had a conflict instead of calming down and talking to each other. And it's that repair after a conflict that really matters for relationship quality. So the study in infants where they did like a modified still face 
having the mom look at her smartphone instead of doing the still face? And then how did the repair look that time when the child has just been a bit dysregulated and upset, but you kind of calm down and this is thought to be a paradigm for, we have disruptions with our kids all the time. We misunderstand them, we yell at them, but it's the repair where we're able to either say we're sorry or debrief about what happened and come up with some problem-solving strategies for later. Parents who used their phones a lot around their kids, so this kind of heavier displacement, had trouble with the repair phase where it just, they didn't click as much. They weren't able to calm a fussy infant or maybe they didn't have as much confidence in their ability to figure out. And many of us know that feeling when you have an infant that won't calm down and you're like, I stink at this. I don't, like I'm the worst parent ever. Why can't I do this? Moms should be able to do this. And that feeling of like, I just can't handle my kid is so alienating and demoralizing. And so, you know, that's why I don't think it's as easy as, well, turn your phone off and your relationship with your child will improve. I think in many cases you may need, you know, a home visitor or an infant mental health therapist or a family therapist who can just help you do more of the repair and more of the emotional communication in your family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful way to understand it, that it's, and I guess to summarize, I think what I had read in one of your papers was, was that the effect sizes here are fairly small. We're not talking about if you're experiencing technoference 10 times a day versus one times a day, that the 10 times a day person is going to uh, have some kind of dramatically different outcome with their child, but that when it's compounded over many, many, many interactions over many, many years, and there are these other things that are going on in the relationship, that that's when we need to look at it holistically. We can't just look at technoference in isolation and say, uh, shutting your phone off is going to fix all your problems <laughs> right? and it's damaging your child. <laughs> right. I, I hate the word damage. You know, I kind of want there maybe to be this, maybe a feeling of like, well, in these younger years, I'm just going to invest. I know it's harder, but I'm going to invest in some of these more difficult interactions or trying to, you know, sacrifice some of our own pleasure. That sounded horrible, but I like, you know, being able to invest in your child and you kind of building these comp this social and emotional competence together, which will make, hopefully make the school years and adolescence much easier for both of you. And so rather, rather than it seem like, oh, you've done irreparable damage to your child during these early years, I want it to be more seen as a time of really important investment of parent growth. Mm -hmm. Right. We do so much growth as humans by understanding our kids and why they trigger us or why our spouse acts a certain way or why the fact that like my son reminding me of, you know, my mother <laughs> uh, makes me feel a certain way. All that is really important insight to just grapple with mm -hmm. and not avoid. And of course, I'm this is my bias because I'm a pediatrician and someone who really thinks about mental health and emotional health a lot. But I think when parents have that self-efficacy to be like, I'm just going to dig into this and we're going to figure out what we can do. It's just better for everyone compared to the, the demoralization or distancing that happens when you just feel like it's all too much. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's just say I'm a parent and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly concerned about this. I'm not, you know, super, super concerned about it, but I, I think it's something I might want to do something about. 
But we're in this kind of really weird world right now where we're all around each other all the time. And my daughter is starting to pick up on the fact that she has limits on her screen time, which I'm going to write a blog post about this at some point. We did an unlimited screen time for a month experiment to see how that would go. And we actually ended up at her request coming back to limited screen time. But she sees that her screen time is limited and my time is not. And, you know, the reality is I'm spending 10 hours a day on the computer. And I always used to do that, but she was in preschool before and she didn't see that. And now she sees me on the computer all the time. Mm -hmm. And I did find a study that said that mothers on average of these people who were studied spent 6.1 hours a day on their smartphones. So I'm not alone in this. And, you know, right now I can enforce limits on her screen time, but there's going to come a time when (laughs) when that's not the case. So how can we kind of convey this idea that, you know, I am here for you and I want to have this relationship with you. And also there are times when I'm going to be behind the screen and we just can't do it right now. Mm. Well, there's a a couple things I'm thinking about. One is As parents, we can try to be a little bit more conscious about our own daily screen use habits and not have it just be this automatic habit-driven experience, right? So step one is just trying to raise it from your subconscious to your conscious where you're like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Like look at your screen time on your phone or whatever. See how much time you're spending on different apps. This in itself isn't going to you know, make you change your behavior, but at least we need the awareness and the time to reflect upon what we're doing on technology. And then at that point, you can also decide like, wow, I spend that much time on Facebook or on Twitter or on email. How much of that is necessary? Which ones of these apps, when I look at their icons, I think like, oh, this is like, this really helps me. And other ones that are like, I feel this ambivalence with it. So I've had some parents say they've like, tried a two-week uninstallation of the apps that don't fulfill them as much, you know, always just looking at Facebook on a browser, you know, just setting a, a few new rules or boundaries for themselves and then using it as an experiment. Did it help? Did it not? Did you miss it or didn't you? Did you feel like you had a clearer head? You know, this is all such an individual experience. There's no one size fits all prescription to give, but it's worth experimenting and examining your own reactions to changes in your technology use. When we can't get off our laptop, because we have to work, at least you can show children what you're doing. Mm. This is boring. You can do it if you want. Yeah, I know. Like, do you want to hear what I'm doing? I mean, there's papers about technoference. Yeah, I'm messaging parents on the medical record. You know, I'm not sitting here playing Minecraft. You know, I'm so... So if you explain the purpose and how you're using technology to like meet the greater good, I guess, Mm -hmm. or just to do your job or to make some money, like you have to give kids that larger context of how you're using media and maybe even talk about your own multitasking. Like, you know, I, please, during virtual learning, my seven-year-old just is constantly wanting to leave the Zoom calls and go onto YouTube or he's like, just wants to explore Google Drive and like make new documents. And (laughs) it's all just that he's, you know, loves to explore and is inattentive right now. So I think we should talk about our own inattention or our own multitasking or like how many browser windows do you have up? Why do we need so many up? How do you keep track of, you know, whether the news you've read today is real or fake or, you know, what is this person trying to sell you when an ad pops up? Why is this cookies? notification coming up. Sure. So there's, you can do some of that like natural teaching 
if they're curious about what you're doing. I have done family meetings where my kids say, you know, you're just on your phone a ton and I will, will make some behavior change. I'll do some behavior change and so will they, you know, it'll be kind of, everyone has new behavior goals. And that's, you know, parents could maybe get some insight from their kids of like, okay, what's the time of day when you really want me the most? Mm. And I'll try to carve out that time Mm. to be off tech. It stinks because a lot of us as parents are now doing more media use in the evenings after kids are in bed to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating to look back through all the literature on how to navigate working from home. And it's all talking about having separation between, you know, having a separate room and mm-hmm. having rituals that you go through before you go to that place. And and I'm just looking at it laughing. And I, I was typing the questions for this episode while my daughter's sitting next to me on kids YouTube, because we don't let her use that unsupervised. And, you know, there's no separation here <laughs> no. whatsoever. And, <laughs> right. And there's, it's really hard to have this kind of intentional you know, teaching moments, like I just described with your kids, Mm -hmm. when our heads are so full of all the different demands on parents. So right now, parents have been asked to do like an impossible number of tasks and roles. And so maybe the most we can come out of this time where we're using a lot of tech, our kids are using a lot of tech is at least it will maybe make us more enlightened about our relationships with technology and what feels good about some of the things we do and what feels overloading. Uh, You know, like your daughter asked to peel back on time. And I've heard kids on my son's Zoom call say like, I need a screen break. (laughs) I need to go move my body. Uh You know, what isn't tech doing for us right Mm -hmm. now in the ways that we, what do we miss so much that we can't get through technology? And Maybe that will help us be more reflective about the boundaries we want to set after, you know, all the kind of lockdowns or social distancing changes are done. Yeah. But I think another way to think about screen time limits for kids is that the more we are teaching them, well, how are you using media? Is it something like fun and creative? Are you making movie trailers? Are you designing something new or are you watching unboxing videos for two hours straight. You know, there's a difference between the consumptive and kind of just being zoned, not zoned out. I don't like using the the words that like, because we don't know what kids are really Mm -hmm. experiencing in their inner selves as they're watching an unboxing video. But there's something a little bit escapist in in a lot of the, say like YouTube content for kids or slime videos or other things that are just satisfying, but they're not necessarily challenging our brains in new ways. So one thing we can do early on is expect, help kids expect that media use is not just going to be sitting there and being satisfied, that it's going to be you taking control and you finding cool stuff or you making cool stuff. And that to help kids also know how to turn it off themselves Mm -hmm. rather than you as the parent always having to grab it out of their hands. (laughs) So some degree of their own self-awareness and self-regulation around technology, I think is really important to start talking about, you know, in early childhood. Yeah. Okay. And then the elephant in the room kind of (laughs) popped its head up in my mind as we, as we were thinking about that, which is, you know, what if it's not me? What if it's my partner? Yeah. You know, I I see this going on. Maybe I'm trying to do so. I'm trying to take steps to do the things we've talked about today, but my partner is oblivious and I see my child's attempts to connect with my partner and I see them falling flat. 
you don't have to speak from direct experience if that's not applicable to you, but. <laughs> you know, it's actually funny because my husband had a flip phone for a long time oh, funny. and just got his first smartphone like <laughs> and now he's time. three years ago or, you know, two or three years ago. So he is first little iPhone 5S mm-hmm. or, you know, tiny little thing. And all of a sudden I'd see him just on it, you know, just hanging out by the kitchen sink, looking at something. And I was like, Haha, you you've made fun of me all this time for looking so absorbed in, you know, this little computer that I'm carrying around. And it was pretty interesting to watch his own reaction to all that was available now in this. But and we, I finally had to start being like, we just need to put this down while we're talking to each other because we have such <laughs> limited amounts of time where we can think clearly and negotiate what our day is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be competing with whatever's coming through that device. But again, I do this for a living. So I am pretty straightforward about these topics in my family. And I guess I would just encourage other families to be pretty straightforward about it. Like this is a thing. It is going on around us. We should talk about it. And we should talk about, whenever you're talking about a problem in your family, you can't come in and accuse or tell someone what they're doing wrong. Have a family meeting where you're doing some collaborative problem solving and you say, I'm seeing this as a problem. What are you seeing as a problem? Well, how do you feel about this? What are some solutions you can think of? And you have the kids involved too, so they can speak up about what they think about the spouse or partner. And you maybe set some ground rules that it's not about telling other people that they're bad, but it's about expressing, you know, and finding a shared solution. So I really like the collaborative problem-solving approach that Ross Green (laughs) in The Explosive Child because it's trying to have everyone's Mm buy-in in something that's going to be hard for for some members of the family. And my husband did try to shut off the Wi-Fi to my phone during (laughs) mealtimes. Once we got a new Wi-Fi provider, that that was really annoying. Yeah. And I was like, I don't need a policeman. I need maybe more internal motivation to not be using it around dinner time. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I wasn't using it at the table. It was more just, I'd pick it up whenever and maybe not help so much as I could have been uh-huh. <laughs> with, with preparing, you know, and, and wrangling the kids and stuff yeah. like that. So, you know, yeah, that's my advice. I think the conversation about your partner using technology is going to be interwoven with all your other dynamics mm-hmm. about what your avoidance tactics are or your different emotional communication styles, the role balance in your family. So just know it's got to go deeper than just who's using a phone, but it's one modifiable behavior though. Like that's why it's worth talking about because it is something you can put down and extricate yourself from and it'll be fine. <laughs> it yeah. will. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, <laughs> for reassuring us. Um, us know what's worth worrying about and for reassuring us. I'm so grateful for you spending your time with us today. Yeah, this was a really great conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. And so listeners can find all of the references to the more than 30 studies that we talked about today at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash technoference. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.